Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you interesting guests who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respects to all First Nations people. Joining us for our first episode is Dr. Has Dalal. He's the Chairperson and Executive Director of the Australian Multicultural Foundation. Hass has over 25 years of service to multicultural organisations, the arts and the community promoting multicultural Australia. In 1997, he received the Medal of the Order of Australia for his service to multicultural organisations, the arts and the community, as well as the Centenary of Federation Medal in 2003. In 2015, he was awarded Officer of the Order of Australia for his distinguished service to the multicultural community and the advancement of inclusiveness and social harmony, as well as to youth and the broadcast media. Dr Dalal was born in Melbourne to Turkish Cypriot parents. He lived in Turkey with his family between the ages of 10 and 13, after which they returned to Australia. Welcome, Hass. Hass, given this is our first episode and we're actually focusing in on social cohesion, we really wondered um, what does social cohesion mean to you and, and, and how do you see it actually playing out around you? Thanks, Andy. It's, uh, firstly, uh, I uh, wish to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, we are actually uh, conducting this podcast on and uh, pay my respects to elders past, present and uh, emerging. Um, a, a very good question, uh, uh, Anthea, after I sort of reflect back, I, I guess in the 35 years I've been with the foundation and, and working in this field of um, promoting diversity and ensuring that everyone uh, is able to contribute to Australia's social, economic and cultural well-being by, you know, uh, the means that we can provide. Uh, whether it be through the work we do or working with others like the Scanlon Foundation and many other organisations that I've worked with for the last 35 years, government, federal, state, local. Uh, and it's certainly an area that has uh, there's much been uh, written about social cohesion and, and certainly came on the radar. Uh, and now I must say, you know, with um, the work of the Scanlon Foundation, you know, we were sort of referring um, to try and describe cohesiveness in one way, whether it was through multiculturalism, whether it was through, you know, other terms that we were trying to grapple with, but all ultimately what we're trying to say is that how do we um, live together as a, as a diverse community? And I think um, with the work uh, from uh, starting with, I guess, with the so uh, Scanlon Foundation's Mapping Social Cohesion, that gave it some meaning and, you um, I guess uh, there's been much written about social cohesion from a theoretical perspective, um, and um, and and there's been numerous uh, definitions on how to define it. Um, and I and I guess I agree, you know, I, I, that the theoretical approaches play an important role in shaping public policy um, and and in the research and measurement of cohesion in societies, but. I think it's really the practical realities of, of, of what that means of social cohesion, namely what is what social cohesion means um, 
when it's experienced by an individual uh, within neighbourhoods and communities is what it really means for me and the impact of that. So it's really about that shared um, vision, which includes, you know, those universal values we talk about and mutual respect and, and common aspirations, uh, a, a community that is well functioning where they are, where they do share goals and, and responsibilities and, and where they are, I guess, ready to cooperate with other members of, of society. Um, the, uh, um, the process of achieving um, harmony or that social harmony and, and not simply um, a program or based on policy, policy outcomes, but those concepts of real belonging and shared values and participation and, and a sense of connectedness um, that are central to this understanding of what social cohesion may be, or the um, abstract concepts and more on, on how these concepts are translated into reality and, and specifically how belonging and participations are shared um, and those values are experienced. So we're really talking about people and community and it's their lived experience and how do you measure that um, in terms of uh, um, uh, as, as a practice, but also I, I guess it... Um, how do you actually also identify the challenges? Because I think the way you strengthen social cohesion is sometimes through the challenges and, and because they become the issues that you need to, to, to work with and, and develop social policy or community connectors around in terms of moving forward. So I guess it's, it's very broad. And um, for me, uh, you know, uh, it, it's really strategically how you plan for the needs of your your communities um, and then how do you actually, in a way, monitor, evaluate and 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 learn from those shared, shared outcomes in order to move forward. And this requires a partnership. It's not just community. It's got to be with government and non-government and corporates. Everybody needs to work together in, in sort of, maintaining this and so that you know we as a society um are able to work towards a well-being of all members you know yeah has your your family's experience is interesting though i'm thinking that i completely understand all the things that you've said around the the different Mm. uh, components on a macro level Mm. what about on a micro level how would your father have thought Social. Co- what what would he have interpreted as social cohesion, given his experience in coming to Australia and then choosing oh, look, what your life simple, would be like? Yeah, a simple word, really. It, a sense of belonging and being able to participate. That that was simple as that. Um, that's why I'm saying, you know, we've got to go beyond the theoretical perspectives of this and and talk about the reality and what yeah. it, what it's meant for each person through each generation. And my father's generation, it was right that sense of belonging, being able to let's say. Um, he wanted to go to uh, a university and become a vet in Australia. That, that's, oh. you know, he had that vision when he came over from Cyprus in 1948 to be a veterinarian and that didn't happen. So he then wanted further opportunities to work and mm-hmm. he, that was provided even in 48, you know, he was able to go out 
although, look, admittedly, he was able to speak the language because he came from Cyprus under the Commonwealth. You know, he grew up in a school where they taught English, so he could speak English. So it was very important for him to be able to communicate. But what he did realise was that, you know, if you had the ability to communicate, doors would open for you. And that was one of the first things that he he realised, that it was so important to be able to, um, engage in order to achieve what you wanted to do. And that's why I, I guess I say I'm very a great supporter of, of language learning in a country. Mm-hmm. And some people sometimes say it's, you know, it's just not just language learning. But, you know, we saw it at the early migrants. We see it, you know, now how important it is to be able to have at least a skill to communicate mm-hmm. in order to explain what you want. Mm-hmm. so that you can open those doors. And I saw that with my father. And and I think, uh, you know, for him it was that being able to communicate, the ability to communicate and have that sense of belonging so he can participate and achieve his aspirations in life. For that's, him and his really, that's really interesting because earlier you mentioned how um, one way to understand or look at social cohesion is by looking at or identifying the challenges and when you said that and I kind of considered how one of the challenges for people might be that if you look at Australia we've we've had a history of constantly integrating new people into our into our society and so from that perspective we're 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 always having to work on social cohesion and we're always having to Mm. adjust um I think that point about communication is really important because as I reflect on my experience in this country as an, a young African-Australian woman, I have at times been able to identify where I felt limited or where I haven't felt as welcomed. But at the same time, I was equipped with such strong language skills and the ability to communicate yeah. that I actually saw how I was able to overcome certain environments as a result. So I think mm. that that makes a lot of sense to me and my lens, how communication mm. can be your your weapon, you know, in, in a world... <laughs> that is constantly having to sort of adjust and shift. Um, and admittedly, it, sh- it can't be an easy task to you know, <laughs> achieve social cohesion in a society that's constantly changing and welcoming new things. Um, but I wonder what more, if, you know, if we take the first step of you know, learning how to communicate and we seek opportunities, surely, again, you've got to interact now with the system and they've got to meet you mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, what would some of those challenges be or what sort of things does the system have to overcome in order to meet us in the middle? Well, that's an interesting question that you raised because I I think for any um, uh, society, and and I've been thinking about this in terms of, you know, what, what would you, what do you need uh, within for a system or a government or community in terms of, uh, preserving cohesion or simply because, as you point out, it's so diverse in so many ways, not just in, in what it what it means, but in terms of um, moving forward. It's always something that's ongoing. You can't sit back and say we've achieved, you know, cohesion in our society uh, because there, there are always so many elements. And given Australia's um, unique diversity, which is continually growing um, in, in so many ways, um, it, it requires those systems and those changes. And I reckon, first of all, you need a strong government um, government um, leadership and direction. Uh, I think that's so important. Two, I think um, engaged and in accountable government decisions uh, around um, social policy and the public sector, it, it, it is important. I think um, supporting a workforce that is um, diverse and 
and, and having a workforce that is culturally competent, so understanding cultural competency within a diverse workforce. Diversity in education, I think it's, it's paramount to empower and um, to provide um, um, knowledge, inform knowledge to your students around, you know, diversity and, 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 and society that you are living within. And having conversations on inclusion at public, at government and community levels. Mm-hmm. Open, difficult conversations and to improve trust flows. Governments are used to making decisions on behalf of communities. Yes. Governments are not used to make, having genuine partnerships with communities where they can also make those decisions. Mm-hmm. It's easier for government to make decisions on behalf of community on the guise of consultation, but that's yeah. not, it's not real consultation. Has, has, this, is, this has been uh, a sort of commentary that's been around for the last few weeks or so, which is that now is a time when we can actually engage in conversations. This is the time we should be having conversations about a whole variety of things from climate change to, to uh, the treatment of women to a whole variety of different things. You're, you've been the chair of SBS, you're the chair of the Australian Multicultural Council, but you started as a teacher so, yeah. so what, what, is, what is there about your journey that helps us to understand how we can have these types of conversations with communities? How do we, how do we actually engage at, how do we allow the, 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 those people in leadership positions to feel comfortable having these types of conversations with the community? What does it look like? Well, I, I think it, it, it's, it's really difficult, I guess, because we, we have develop certain structures and, 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 and systems where, yes, we do allow for consultation with communities, but we, um, I, I guess the challenge is for governments to let go of some of their power uh, so that communities can actually genuinely um, be heard about the issues that concern them and that they are part of the co-design of, of a problem or, or, or part of a solution. They are genuinely part of the co-design. And, and I think this came, I became aware of this many, many years ago when I remember we were, uh, the, the Commonwealth Government was developing programs around um, countering violent extremism. So what they did was threw a lot of money out into the community, um, thinking that um, communities would jump at this money uh, and, and that they would sort of develop partnerships. But what it was, it was the government's agenda. So what the government realized, thought that, yes, communities play an important prevention role, uh, but how do you engage with communities so that they can genuinely play an important prevention role? And what are the skills and tools and resources you provide community in order that they become effective and not just throw money at them thinking that they're going to be some sort of... Um, well, you know, a community group that's going to develop a whole range of projects to fit in what you think is right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a genuine partnership. Um, you need to consult with community and really look at the problem and say, and if you really believe that community plays an important role in prevention, then they can be, you know, 50% useful in developing prevention strategies, you then need to let go some of those powers and those misconceptions and ideas that you may have 
or what you think is right um, in order to have that genuine partnership. And I think it applies for social cohesion and policy development as well. And I think it became very evident with the, you know, Housing Commission lockdowns here during during the pandemic, where uh, suddenly there was a lockdown for whatever reason. I'm not going to go into that. There was all lots of issues around there. But I think the key thing was is that when you weren't able to manage the consequences of that lockdown, you ran to the community mm-hmm. to help you. You did not engage with them in the beginning mm. to avoid the problem that was created later on. And I think that was probably one of the biggest lessons. You know, we throw money at community like no, like you know, like no tomorrow. You know, grants and so forth. And now, if you have, um, I guess, uh, you, you are genuinely giving that money so that communities can develop their services, then you should have enough trust in them when it really matters to confide in them on issues because they do have the information, the resources, and and, and the know-how to deal with it before it becomes a problem. So. So what had happened, you know, they locked locked down those housing commissions, as I said, for whatever reason they had to. Um, but at the end of the day, in order to get things working in there, they had to go back to the community because the community knew who was living in what, uh, yeah. you know, sector of those flats. They knew how the food delivery, they had the latest data, they had the latest information, they knew how to communicate, they had the language knowledge, all of that. That is what I call... A genuine resource but if you don't engage them at the beginning then it's pointless yeah this makes that me also wonder. has a huge effect on on a cohesive society because mm. you're saying i don't trust you yeah i know better how to manage you mm-hmm. this makes me wonder on um as well as um, one of the reasons um being that you know perhaps government don't want to let go of some power as well as that i wonder if they're is a, a hesitation to interact with cultural communities by government bodies because of a lack of knowledge or comfort or confidence in actually interacting. Because I actually met recently an amazing cultural consultant who delivers, um, you know, keynote speeches and does workshops um, for, say, like um, staff at like Monash. And she's learnt through her, that process that a lot of the reason that, say, um, two parties don't interact is just because they don't know how to interact. And in an effort to avoid uncomfortable interaction, they actually just stay away from it altogether. So I wonder if, you know, the lack of cultural competency that you were talking about, is that perhaps one of the reasons why the system hesitates to interact with us, the cultural communities? All right. right. Um, Good point, but how long do we use that argument? Exactly, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, and that's why. I was, but it, it's not so much an argument in this case. <laughs> no, as an excuse. Right. How long do we use that excuse? Right. I'm not, I'm not talking about you. I'm, I'm talking about government mm-hmm. and other thing. You know, we have invested millions and millions in cultural competency, in mm-hmm. train the trainers, in 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 all sorts of tools and products within government. They spend their entire life consulting so they can develop. You, you know, resources for their staff. And I can name you, I've seen so many over the 35 years. I mean, I've just finished one for Morris Blackburn, but they've been committed for the last 10 years and we've been developing their cultural competence programs year over year. You know what? They continually change it. They are moving with the time. It's a commitment. Mm. It's a commitment and dedication for the future, improving for the new set of solicitors that are coming in. Mm. It's not a one-off thing. Mm -hmm. Now, 
governments and others are, have been really good at, you know, suddenly ringing up consultants and others. We need to do a cultural competency course and we've got this. It might sit there for three or four years. How do we know what, how that passes on to the next employer or employee or the new section? How is it updated? Is it updated? Is it current? What is the status of this, you know? So uh, I, you know, for me, as a, for a country that talks about being the best country in the world in terms of diversity and multiculturals and all that, this should be second nature to us. We shouldn't even have to worry about this stuff. It should just happen. I get more cultural competence in some other European countries in government departments than I do here. Uh, well, well let, let's talk a little bit about what, what social cohesion is like in practice or, or some of these activities in practice. And I was just thinking, Has that, that your whole family and yourself have been incredibly committed to the community, to ensuring that we all learn uh, the various components that we need to put in place in order to make people have that sense of belonging. Are there any examples where you've seen it work really well? Ah, another good question. All the hard questions from you two guys. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I guess um, I, th there's been some great examples that I, I have seen, and and it's really been at the um, uh, at, at the community level. Uh, I've I've seen instances where um, where uh, in an educational environment, in a schooling environment, where there was a particular school that was having some real difficulty with with the students and the composition of those students, right? And, um, and and there was this one principal, I won't go into names and that, but there was this one principal and she had some great foresight. Um, the first thing she wanted to do is she realised that the school was diverse in so many ways that um, she took the step of stepping out of her school and going into the community, um, into community groups and organisations and families and homes to really understand you know, those challenges within the community. Got the stories, got the stories, got the narratives, you know, firsthand, the lived experiences of people. And then what she did was match those lived experiences with other families, particularly those young students' families who, um, and, and this is really difficult to do, who were, I guess, giving those newer members of their community a hard time from students. But she went beyond that. She took it to the family. She introduced the families to each other. Mm -hmm. So the families got to understand each other. And in turn, the families then became the educators to their children, mm -hmm. who are the kids who are actually, you know, because rather than blaming the child and saying, you know, you're abusive or you're um, discriminating, it comes from somewhere. She felt it actually came from somewhere, and that was that the entire community didn't understand this new community that had just settled in, in her community. So she engaged the communities together. So there were social barbecues, um, uh, you know, parents meeting parents and all that sort of stuff. And she built trust. She built confidence and a sense of security. And what that meant was the families the kids whose families were, you know, being abusive, as I said, or racially um, discriminating, there was a change because the families got, they felt you know, they were a bit more informed about those communities. They were no longer a threat. So they broke down those, the fear of the unknown, those barriers, the fear of the unknown. So that, that engagement um, sort of 
developed a, a, a sense of, I, I guess, a, a better sense of belonging for the new arrivals in that in that community, but a better understanding took away the fears from from the you know the general populace in that small community itself. And I thought that was a, a wonderful thing. You know, it wasn't a thing where she would put you know put the students together in the school and just kept it there. She realised it was beyond the school. And if you want to make a permanent change, you had to go beyond because the par- she saw the parents as the educators, not just the teachers. And I thought that was a really, a really strategic and a very visionary approach. And I'm talking about 15, 20 years ago here. And I thought, wow, that was really good. Um, and, and, and well done to her in that sense. So that was, for me, uh, a changing moment um, yeah. for me. It is amazing uh, because, how, how pivotal teachers and, and principals uh, are within the community if itself. Yeah, if, if they take that, if they're brave enough to go outside of their environment a little bit, that school environment, and look at this their school as the entire community, mm. it, it plays such an important role, not educating the, only the children. And, and the other thing was um, in the same, same uh, area, same school, uh, in the primary level, and I don't know if it was a direct effect of this, but I'll never forget, I was standing in a street corner and I, there was a father and there was her young daughter just picking her up from the primary school and these young, um, this family of Vietnamese went by and he, I don't know, he saw something and he swore at them. And the young girl tagged on her father's hand and said, that's not nice, Daddy. You shouldn't be saying things like uh. that about these people. Yeah. Now that was from that school. Mm. Now I thought. Now whether it was a consequence of the the um, the ethos and the value of that school that was a, a lesson learned from this previous experience, this principal um, sort of initiated. I'm not sure, but I thought, boy, yeah, if a five year old, you know, or six, seven year old little girl recognizes that that was wrong to yes. me, that's yes. Uh, Mm, it makes me think that's about social cohesion. Yeah. That's social That's living cohesion. Absolutely. That's what that's all about. It seems as mm. if social cohesion is also, you know, a, a part of it is us not checking each other, but holding each other accountable in like direct or indirect ways um, mm. and passing, passing, passing something on or, you know, ushering people into an environment and making them feel comfortable. Um, why, why is it important to talk at a, talk about social cohesion in in Australia I think we sort of have touched on one reason I mean for one Australia is always changing and we've always got to sort of be conscious of social cohesion I think that's actually one thing I'm thinking about now is how it would help if we were just conscious of (laughs) of the term social cohesion what it means and I think um, just being conscious of it would help us contribute to it a little bit more or maybe just what some of the particular aspects are that we personally yeah. can make a contribution to. Yes, yeah. Look, uh, I think membership to a, a society is, is so important. Um, and and I, if we can just allow people to become members, um, then that will remove a lot of um, uh, antagonism and anxiety within people because we, we, we you know, we tend to, create our own perceptions and stereotypes, whether it's based on media or social media. But, you know, even before that, when we didn't have, you know, rampant social media and people weren't so involved with media, we still created stereotypes and perceptions. It's, it's like when I was growing up as a child, I mean, you know, straddling 
dual cultures is always a challenge for any mm-hmm. young person in a, you know, for, for any migrant child, uh, you know, one, you need to have the sense of, you know, you want to feel that you belong to a group of people, whether it's in the, you know, the local shopping centre or in the school or in your in the communities you live in, um, or in your workplace or, or whatever, um, and 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 you want to be accepted. And then you've got this pressure at home uh, about not losing your culture and your values, and you're not like them. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we we're not like them. It's, it takes two. You know, we always talk about the receiving country, but what about the people that come here as well? They they need to integrate as well. They need to understand that it's important for social cohesion. It's Mm. not one way, it's two ways and you need to. So Hass, what was the impact of spending those those few years when you were an early teenager going back to Turkey? Well, it was huge because as I said, I I was born here, but at the age of um, eight or nine, my father decided that he'd take me back, he'd take the family back to Turkey, which was a big step. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, uh, because he felt that, you know, we were losing our culture and, and, and language as well. And he, he was a great, great believer that, you know, your culture and your language uh, is an asset to any society. And if you lose it, you become a mishmash of nothing, you become nothing, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just hear just here and there. So he didn't want us to lose our understand our Australianness, but he also did not want us to lose our language and culture from our heritage. So he took us back. But, you know, he forgot one thing, uh, the fact that we couldn't speak Turkish and the second <laughs> thing that we were leaving from Australia. So I'll never forget when I first went to school there and the other thing he forgot was that um, uh, Australia and Turkey were enemies. Uh-huh. In my days, I mean, uh-huh. because of politically, right? Yes. I mean, it's not the camaraderie you have here today. No. <laughs> okay, so that was established after 1968 when Turkish migration really happened, and my family played a very important role in the Turkish migration, but also changing those perceptions mm-hmm. when we came back. As a leader, he was. But anyway, getting back to Turkey, I'll never forget the first day I went to school there, and um, I arrived there. Hardly, no Turkish, just English. And my parents had the foresight to enroll me in a school that where they actually taught English. So okay. there was English and Turkish, so that helped. Mm-hmm. And I remember these young Turkish students coming up to me and asking where I was from. And I said, from Australia. And they looked at me re- really strange because they couldn't work out. And, and I quickly said, but I'm Turkish descent. You know, <laughs> I, as a qualifier, I felt I had to right. do this. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I felt danger. So I quickly said, and Turkish, as well, and sorry, Australian, uh, Turkish descent. And they couldn't understand, you know, this is 1962 I'm talking about. Why, you know, there are no Turks in Australia. Why would you be there? We fought with them. They're enemies. So the first thing they said to me was that, you you know, you're, you're the enemy. You're really an Australian and you killed my uncle in Gallipoli, oh, right? So yeah. they didn't accept me. So, you know, and I'll never forget they they actually, on, on the third or fourth week there, they invented a game in my honour and they called it Gallipoli. And basically what it meant was I was on in every playtime uh, recess time, I was on one end of the schoolyard and, and they were on the other, about 10 of them, and they'd go, charge the pads. Oh, it was wow. a war game, all Gallipoli. So oh. they attacked me and, and hit, you know, so there'd be always fights. Um, oh. Of course, oh. the results were never in my favour. I always lost. <laughs> um, so, but there was this one you young Canadian. to be fair. Outnumbered, but there was this one young Canadian boy and uh, he was about my age and he was also from the Commonwealth, but he was similar, Canadian of Turkish descent. 
So I said, you stay on my side. He said, why? I said, you're part of the Commonwealth. You stay on my side. He never knew what I was talking about. But anyway, but I had to resolve that problem. I had to resolve that problem because it, it, it couldn't work that way. So what I did was I remember I had all these pictures of these kangaroos and, and little things and statues and so forth. So I brought it to school one day and everyone gathered around me and wanted to know what this was. So I made up all this rubbish story about these golf bears sitting on gum trees and they'd actually never breathed air and they got their air through eating gum leaves. They couldn't believe that. It was rubbish. I had a kangaroo, jumped in their pouch and went to school with a kangaroo. They loved the story, but it broke down the barriers and I was able to tell them my story and my history that I was a Cypriot Turk. My parents came. I was born in Australia. So after a while, they became real, you know, friends. And we used to go out marching in the street, throwing rocks at the American Army <laughs> windows together, you know. So <laughs> you know, that's what we did. We had a common enemy. In those days. So <laughs> that's what we did. So has this, ha- this gives you a, 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 an incredible hilarious. personal insight into the experiences mm. of people, new arrivals into Australia and some of the, exactly, the conflicts not, that they have to negotiate on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. Not everyone engages Absolutely. that level of creative problem-solving. No. <laughs> and, and, well, yeah, well, that's it. And, and the language ability and all the mm. rest of it. But then five years later, we came back here, mm. right? And when I, I was uh, going to school, I grew up out of Broadmeadows in those early days and Glenroy, uh, sorry, Marylands High School out of Reservoir Broadmeadows. Sitting, I think, Form 3 or whatever it was, Form 2, Form 1, Form one, form 2, I can't remember in those days. Anyway, <laughs> sitting in the classroom every Anzac Day, the ABC used to run a, uh, a, um, a commemoration of Anzac Day. And every time they talked about Johnny Turk, every eyeball would go into my room. This time I was a Turk, not an Australian, coming back here. Mm. Again, fights at recess time. Of yeah, course. again, mm, yeah. and all the rest of it. Finally, I decided, and I think this is, I suddenly realised from the Turkish experience, what I learned from there um, was something that was so important to me that I had to accept who I was and not let others determine who I was. Mm. So basically I said, I'm an Australian of Turkish descent and that's who I am. And and since from that day, I never let anyone determine who I was. Wow. And I think that's a really, otherwise I, I just would have had to conform to everything everyone wanted. Mm. I relate to just that. Just to be accepted. Mm. Such courage. And I think it's really important for young people to understand we live in a country now where diversity is by and large accepted mm-hmm. regardless, right? I mean, yes, we do have our challenges and newer communities do have their challenges, but you've got to stand up and say, this is who I am. And the Australianness is important. That's why I say it takes two. You just can't come to this country and just, you know, forget that. You are an Australian of a particular culture or descent or a faith, and we accept that. We work very hard to accept that. If you start dissolving that or sort of, you know, sort of playing around with that, then we do have a mishmash of a society. It's so important to make sure who we are and be clear about that because this country says to us, we give you the rights to your religion, your faith, your culture, right? Mm. You know, that they are, they're there. The three dimensions are so important. And yes, there are responsibilities and obligations, and that's about you know reciprocal respect, the you know abiding by the law, commitment to Australia first and foremost. It's not a big ask. Mm. 
it's when so you have all these other when you have all these other mm. you know elements i agree and I, I i relate to that from my experience and from my identity as an african australian as an australian woman with ethiopian descent i found that it was much more beneficial for me to actually embrace both sides as two whole things that I'm embracing. So the duality in my identity rather than trying mm. to, like you say, mishmash that. And honestly speaking, as I, as I continue to reflect as well on social cohesion, it's almost as if, um, you know, being in this cohesive society, it's like, it's, it's, a sh- it's a shock absorber. It's like all yeah. of these things like racism and, you know, the things that I do experience still being an African-Australian mm-hmm. woman, microaggressions, being a, uh, having a strong sense of belonging in, say, educational spaces, um, workspaces, it really does act as a shock absorber for the racist yeah. experiences, for the microaggressions. And that's yeah. why I do encourage young people who have these experiences to, you know, find that sense of belonging in in pockets of the society, which, you know, come under these big umbrellas of education <laughs> and work and family and community. And once you find yourself solid there, I think a lot of other things tend to get better as well. There is something yeah. really wonderful <laughs> about referring to of of Ethiopian descent or of Cypriot descent yeah. or Turkish yeah. descent only because it helps people to actually get to grips with the range of diversity mm-hmm. that I don't I'm not putting you into a bucket of Africans yeah. right. I'm actually yeah. recognizing that you have a very specific component of that diversity that you're bringing and mm-hmm. it's it's an incredibly and, valuable and it's thing such to a do rich component to help this country move forward you oh. know it we've got to work towards um you know, the well-being of all its members and we've got to fight against exclusion and marginalisation and, and create that sense of belonging. And if you're not convinced who you are, right, mm-hmm. and stand up for who you are and believe in who you are, then you are actually adding to that marginalisation in a way because you don't know how the other person will respond to you. You know, you're not yeah. giving a clear sign. You're not giving a clear direction. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're letting that person determine who you are. Yes. Mm, so has, as, as we come to near the end of the podcast, um, mm. I wondered if you could possibly share a little bit about your thoughts about what are some of the things you'd like to see happen over the next few years? What are some of the things that we could actually start doing and putting in place? Look, for, for me, I, I think, Anthea, uh, the, the, I, I guess it's, it's funny, I mean, People say to me, oh, we have so many, we've had so many issues that have come out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, one way, yes. Um, I, I think those, the cracks were already there before the pandemic on a lot mm-hmm. of social issues. I think they just got wider. And and for me, it really is coming back to that whole concept or that whole idea, notion of uh, improving trust flows mm-hmm. between um, government and community. Well, so policymakers and government. Mm-hmm. I, I really would like to see a genuine effort in in collaboration and co-design on issues. I really would because I think I saw what was achieved during the pandemic where community actually initiated projects. Yeah. They actually did and government relied on them, mm-hmm. Reli- actually relied on them. Mm, yeah, And it was almost like saying, yes, we give you these resources of money because we think you're a genuine partner. We don't give you these resources of money because we want your vote or because you're a welfare, you know, this notion of welfare. Right. It's more than that. Once you are out there as a 
you know, an active member of society, whether it's an individual or within the community, you know, there is so much scope. And what that also does is that it shows to the wider community, boy, migration does work. Look how effective communities can be. They are actually developing solutions to problems and it's a whole. People see that as a as an inclusive way of working together. And we're talking Everyone's about sharing com- that responsibility. Yeah, and common issues. We're talking about and common, common issues. issues that run across exactly. the board. So if the Somali community went out and or the Turkish community and, and promoted vaccines or influenza vaccines or good hygiene, it helped the entire community, not just the Somali. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Mm, absolutely. And, that's, and that only happens with co-design and a, a sense of ownership and responsibility and respect for the community in a real way. And that's what I'd like to see. Well, there you have it, co-design for cohesion. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> and I do think this sense of trust, the trust that's been yeah. built and the trust that we've got yeah. as, as that sense of goodwill within society. Yeah. I and think I would that's going to, to come up over and over again. Yes. Absolutely, Anthony. And I would just hope we don't lose what we developed, what we learned <laughs> exactly. over this pandemic period because we did learn a great deal. Yes. Oh. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you you. so much, Hass. It's it's been an absolute delight to have this conversation with you and to kick off our podcast with a conversation with you is uh, just an extraordinary opportunity. So thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope it was worthwhile. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it anyway. (laughs) Thanks very much, Hass. Bye. See you later. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.